Welcome, one and all, to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Martha. Section 230 offers a quick, clean route by which a website can obtain dismissal of a lawsuit attacking it for hosting or taking down speech that originates from a third party. That is the law's primary value as a protection of online speech. And in consequence, Section 230 is often front and center in litigation involving content moderation. Most such litigation starts and ends with Section 230, leaving other issues unaddressed. One unfortunate side effect of this otherwise positive phenomenon is that there are comparatively few decisions that discuss websites quite strong right to moderate content as they see fit under the First Amendment. This is a double problem. First, many politicians, policymakers, and Twitter.com law jockeys are misled into thinking that if only Section 230 were modified or eliminated, websites' choices about what speech to host could be heavily regulated. It could not, because the right to editorial control is fundamental under the First Amendment. The second problem is that there aren't many decisions fleshing out the contours of the right to editorial control as it applies online. Into the breach steps today's guest, Malin Fiddler. She's a visiting faculty fellow at the University of Nebraska Governance and Technology Center and an affiliate of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. She has just published a paper in the Notre Dame Law School Journal of Emerging Technology. It is called The New Editors, Refining First Amendment Protections for Internet Platforms. Her article asks two core questions. Should, quote, editorial privilege remain the same for online platforms as print news? And should, quote, all online platforms and their decisions be seen equally as editors or editing? I think it's fair to say that her overall answer to the first question is yes. I'd describe her answer to the second question as not quite, but wait, hear me out. We'll see if she agrees with that. At all events, her article offers six observations about the right to editorial control that she will tell us about. Malin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you. Um, so tell us a bit about your article. Great. Yes. As you said, Corbin, um, the basic purpose of this article is to look at what an editorial privilege based on the First Amendment would look like for internet platforms, Section 230 aside. So that's not to say that Section 230 is unimportant, um, but it's also important to understand the constitutional backdrop. So my argument is, as you said, the basic qualification for editorial protection does not need to change in an online context. The editorial privilege protects the exercise of selection over the speech of others, curating speech. And when platforms do that, when they exercise selection over speech, they are protected as editors. Well, that's great so, and basically music to my ears. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, I was, there's one important sort of uh, the question that emerges from this, which is uh, that we should not be asking the question whether newspapers are the same as internet platforms, but whether each and when each is engaged in editing. Uh, so again, you know, I, I, I certainly agree with your conclusion. And then um, you had mentioned before we started, you know, we got to get through the six observations, <laughs> which I think is very important. Yes, that is, that is, you know, it, it's always good to have an article that um, sort of confirms like, yes, 
correct. This has been done correctly. And I appreciate you're doing that. And then, but the six observations, I suppose, is what you're trying to sort of be like, uh, and here's what's new. So please. yeah, yeah. So the, the six additional observations are where things get a little bit more, more nuanced. Um, so I'll, I'll run through those and then we can dive into them in more detail. Um, so the first is that the features and functions of online platforms do not change the need to differentiate when a platform is occupying a speaker role versus a non-speaker role. So platforms won't always be speakers, just as offline actors aren't always uh, engaging in sort of speech. Um, second point is that the application of longstanding First Amendment exceptions for low value speech um, to platforms, there's, there's no real reason to exempt platforms from that. That's where people who are concerned about Section 230 come in. That's really sort of the, the downside of sort of a First Amendment regime uh, for platforms uh, absent 230. Uh, third, the judiciary's hesitancy to include market competitiveness factors in First Amendment analyses uh, is relevant to internet platforms and the discussion about um, platform monopolies. So far, that hasn't changed First Amendment analysis. Uh, let's see, fourth, the same features and functions require insisting that no distinction between wholesale and retail editorial judgments emerge in the online space. Uh, fifth, useful distinctions between editing and advertising should remain in the online space. So advertisements don't always constitute uh, editing. And finally, uh, in the platform context, there's a lot more room for users to uh, interact with editing decisions and user decisions should be given greater weight uh, in determining speech-related damages in claims brought against platforms. Well, I guess I reveal myself as a bit of a shill for the status quo, um, at least in the context of online speech, uh, because even within your six, my favorites are the ones that are restating principles that are already established, uh, which I mean, you know, there are reasons to favor the status quo here. Flawed, though, a strong right to editorial control may be, you know, for these large websites problems, it, though it may create. Um, that right can easily, uh, sorry, meddling with that right can easily do a lot more harm than good. You know, just look north to Canada. They're considering uh, online harms legislation that would order websites to monitor for and suppress several broad, vague categories of speech. Uh, it would force websites to really be sort of in bed with the government and um, give the government an advisory role and ability to sort of shift the rules ad hoc. All of the incentives in the legislation are structured to ensure that websites, when in doubt, take content down rather than leave it up. Um, and it requires the websites to report even like potentially harmful content to the gov government. It, it almost turns the websites into, um, into the government's de facto speech police. So with that background, you know, I think perhaps my favorite of your observations is noting that the wholesale, by which I think you, you mean like algorithmic mm -hmm. um, editorial decision making that some websites do gets the same level of protection as what you call retail editorial decision making, say a newspaper deciding to take this or that op-ed. Um, I think in the paper, it might be number three. I think you listed it as number four here, but at any rate, it's my favorite one. <laughs> Um, and, you know, it's one that that um, like Judge 
Hinkle in the Northern District of Florida when he uh, preliminarily enjoined Florida's uh, social media speech code, SB 7072. Uh, so he enjoined it like great, but he, he kind of questioned the validity of treating these kinds of editing mm-hmm. uh, as equivalent. And I, I disagree. So please tell us about that point of yours. Yeah, sure. So just to start with, um, I guess, painting a picture of what we sort of normally think of as editorializing, you know, we think of a pinstriped editor sitting behind a desk, uh, reviewing things one by one and picking what goes in and what doesn't. And algorithmic decision making content moderation doesn't really fit that model. Um, So I think there is there's this sort of initial instinct to not put them in the same category. But what I'm trying to say is the right approach is that we should focus on what is protected by editorial privilege uh, rather than the process. So editorial privilege, again, does not protect a process, it protects the judgment. And uh, online platforms are making editorial judgments through both algorithmic and sort of retail level decision-making. And so offering protection for that algorithmic editing is important for practical reasons and doctrinal reasons. So I'll start with the practical and then we can get into the the nitty gritty of the doctrinal. So practically making a distinction between the two types of editing um, could result in this exact same decisions receiving protection or not receiving protection purely on the basis, the the technological basis used to make that decision. So let's say, you know, there's a new piece of extremist material that a platform wants to take down. Initially, they might start by going through and making retail level distinctions to take that content down. Eventually it will be more automated into algorithmic decision-making. So it, it, it doesn't make sense to, provide, excuse me, (laughs) constitutional protection for one of those decisions, just purely based on the the technological basis. Um, So doctrinally, there are also a few important points that support uh, sort of not making a distinction between these two things. The first point uh, is a doctrinal point about volume. So this goes back to the Supreme Court's decision in American Library Association. This case dealt with whether a library's imposition of internet filters on broad categories of information violated the First Amendment. Now libraries also do this for books, but again, in the book context, it looks a little bit more retail-y. In this case, uh, with the sort of categorical imposition of internet filters, it looked more wholesale. And the Supreme Court in this case said that the problem of volume does not erase constitutional protections. So they said, quote, excluding certain categories of content without making individualized judgments, end quote, does not mean actors are not editing. So that's the first point. The second point is a point about explainability. Um, so the, the case I'm gonna draw on uh, is not at all in the case of algorithms, but it's uh, the Hurley case about sort of parade, parade participants and who's allowed to participate in a parade. Um, in that case, the Supreme Court said that, quote, a private speaker does not forfeit constitutional protection simply by failing to edit their themes to isolate a specific message, end quote. I argue that this uh, language from the Supreme Court suggests that editing decisions don't need to be coherent or explainable. And so al- algorithmic decision making, again, to the average person uh, are not necessarily coherent or explainable but that's consistent with uh, First Amendment editorial uh, doctrine. So that's not to say that explainability of algorithmic decision-making might be wise from a policy perspective, from, but from a First Amendment perspective, um, it's not demanded. 
So many good points in there. Um, I think your article does a great job of reminding the reader that offline, the First Amendment protection of editorial control applies much more widely than just to newspapers. Um, and Hurley is such a great example of that. You know, many people have, um, have fallen for this fallacy that there is some kind of platform versus publisher distinction online, and there's just not. And Hurley is a great demonstration of that. Uh, you know, it's a parade, a St. Patrick's Day parade, and they're bringing other people in. And it's it's fundamentally, you know, maybe editorial is not even quite the right word there. It's curatorial. Um, you you sort of start with the presumption of letting people in, and then maybe you exclude this or that. And and actually, the parades. Um, you know, I'm I'm not pumping up the the parade and the decisions they made mm -hmm. in that case, they actually were sort of getting protected for being, you know, mm -hmm. sort of jerks. They had very lax standards. You even actually could just like show up the day of the parade. A lot of people got to do that and come in. And then a um, LGBT gr group mm -hmm. comes in and, and wants to march and they say no. So it's not like the facts of the case are um, laudatory, but it really does demonstrate the, the strength of the, of the right. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I really like about what you're, you're talking about is making the distinction of um, the, the decisions that are being made and, and not focusing on the process. And I'm going to pick on Canada again today because I have it out for them this morning, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if you can make distinctions based on the process, suddenly you can do what Canada wants to do right now and just take huge swaths of speech and, and basically... Um, wipe them off, basically put social media, put the onus on social media websites to suffer egregious penalties if they fail to police a certain category of speech through their algorithms um, and basically weight the incentives so that it's um, always in favor of taking stuff down and mm -hmm. being over trigger happy in taking material down, which for you know reasons that are maybe a whole separate rabbit hole tend to actually um, affect marginalized groups more than mm -hmm. more than anybody uh so just all kinds of problems with that you know as soon as you treat algorithms as as differently it's sort of the camel under the the nose of the tent um so anyway that's just a lot of of i agree i agree i agree so maybe let's look for um something uh, actually, where oh, Corbin, I, to jump in on the the hate speech problem please. i think there's a huge hate speech problem online um the, what I'm trying to do with this paper, though, is point out that I think where folks are focusing their efforts might be wrong. So I think we have a hate speech problem rather than an online platform regulation problem. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is, at least from a First Amendment perspective, there are existing carve-outs from protection for low-value speech. The problem is our hate speech laws don't carve out very much hate speech as low-value speech. So I think if folks you know, folks who are concerned about hate speech online might be better to redirect efforts towards um, hate speech doctrine writ broadly. Understand that this is a much harder and more difficult task, which is, I think, why efforts are directed more specifically at online platforms. But there's an existing way under the First Amendment, it, it would require, you know, expanding what we consider hate speech. Well, let's let's dive into that. So, um... I'll, I'll be mischievous and say, okay, so the, the liberal Warren court made extraordinarily broad speech rights. I think of like Cohen versus California. And so they possibly are the ones who made that bed. Um, and now we have online, which is a whole different world from what they were living in. Um, and that connects to a question I'd wanted to ask you because you say 
that First Amendment editorial rights online, I, I think you use the word undeveloped. And to the extent you mean something like, you know, the Supreme Court hasn't directly addressed uh, speech on, you know, Facebook or Twitter, you know, obviously that's clearly correct. Uh, but to the, the extent you mean it's sort of like unsophisticated, you know, I'm less sure about that. That's an interesting mm -hmm. question. So, you know, sophistication, I think here means sort of making more distinctions about sort of this speech is protected and this speech is unprotected. Um, so connecting to what you just said, I mean, can you point to maybe like a hole in the development of the law of online speech uh, where you think there's like a meaningful distinction? And what I mean by that is, is there a place that you see there, there possibly being a ruling that could surprise, at least it would surprise me, by imposing sort of new limits on First Amendment protection online? Sure. Uh, so first I'd like to address the, the question of what, what does sophistication mean? Mm -hmm. And then I'll, I'll address sure. the, the example. And the example I have in mind doesn't address hate speech. So we can come back to that if we want to. But I think what I mean by sophistication, what I'm really talking about is analysis, not necessarily the outcomes. So especially in a lot of the cases that exist that apply the law of editorial judgment to online platforms, we just see conclusory analyses of, yes, they're editors, and then blanket protections apply without explaining why they're editors, why what they're doing is speech, um, or what parts of the process uh, at hand are editing. And so the reason that seeing more sophisticated analysis is important, even if the outcomes don't change, is that it would help uh, disabuse people of this notion that, oh, it's newspapers versus internet platforms question, and refocus the analysis on what's important, and that's uh, whether discretion is being exercised over others' speech. So that, that's what I mean by sort of unsophisticated versus sophisticated. Um, sort of a risky slash interesting scenario that I can think of um, actually would involve, I think the wrong, that's not the right way to put it, would involve extending First Amendment protection to a category of online speech, I think wrongly, and that's behavioral advertising. Um, so offline law advertising receives sort of less protections than, um, core editorial speech writ large. There are obviously exceptions to that. The danger online um, is that the way that behavioral advertising works um, is that some the, the same data is used to refine both the core editorial service and the advertising function. So there's a closer intertwining of the curatorial and the commercial features of the platform service um, for those who think that behavioral advertising should receive you know, greater First Amendment protections. The argument goes each ad reflects a platform's choice to show a particular message to a particular user. So that's a targeted communicative choice that should be protected. Uh, I think that this would be wrong to extend greater protection to, to this kind of online advertising. Um, but this is the kind of scenario that would demand that more sophisticated analysis uh, to look at sort of what what are we protecting with editing? Um, what's the core of that protection? You discuss fraud as an allegation that plaintiffs sometimes bring against websites. And I think that's an interesting topic, uh, partly because fraud is kind of an umbrella. Like there's actually several different ways to accuse a website of fraud. Uh, when, I, when I hear it personally though, um, I generally think of what I'll just go ahead and call like really bogus claims mm -hmm. that are, they're just trying to get at the website's editorial choices mm -hmm. and they're trying to come up with some way that there's been some false promise. Um, 
like I'm just in a feisty mood this morning, so I'll, I'll pick on somebody again. You know, I'm thinking of like the, <laughs> the, the PragerU lawsuit mm-hmm. that the Ninth Circuit tossed. Um, could you tell us about that category of cases? Um, and in particular, uh, are there any allegations of fraud that you have in mind or cases that you have in mind that, that where the fraud claim has real bite and is not yeah. sort of an evasion the way that I just described? Yeah, for sure. And you're to start off with, you're absolutely right that a lot of the cases we've seen in the online context uh, are really essentially workarounds trying to get at protected editorial decisions. So I think this is a category where we need to be careful. That said, there is more nuance, um, I think, than a, a lot of people might allow. Um, so let's break down what, what fraud can mean. As you said, there's different kinds of fraud. And so in my paper, I break it down into three categories. Um, the first, uh, possibly not super relevant in the online context. Uh, we'll see. Uh, the, so the first category is an editor endorsing implicitly or explicitly another's fraudulent speech. And what I mean by that is it's, it's actually a very specific context that the Supreme Court has addressed. Um, so that was the Masson versus New Yorker magazine case. There, uh, a journalist presented material in quotation marks that was not actually said by the interview subject. And the editorial process, there's a debate about whether they implicitly or explicitly sort of endorsed this, uh, this quote fraud. Um, and the court actually decided that altering the material is not enough alone to exempt the speech from First Amendment protections, editorial or otherwise, and they offered a series of sort of qualifications um, to that. So th- this decision was sort of more favorable to, f- to fraud <laughs> than you might think, but it's a very particular kind of fraud. Second category, um, speech that furthers fraudulent conduct. Um, this is largely a commercial speech category. So uh, it's only unprotected if it's fraudulent commercial speech. And for folks who are interested in the case law, this would be the Virginia State Board of Pharmacy case. This applies online to online advertising. If you have you know, fraudulent advertising online in the same way that you have fraudulent advertising offline, um, it would fall into this category. The trickiest kind and the one that we're seeing come up in these kinds of cases like PragerU is where an editor institutions uh, or an editor or an institution is making fraudulent statements about editing practices themselves or so-called fraudulent statements. So, so far courts have held that these kinds of statements don't constitute fraudulent advertising. They are quote mere puffery. Um, so that's sort of how they've, they've gotten around this this dilemma, these kinds of statements don't constitute false advertising. Um, So that's the third category. Just one sort of funny thing to say is bringing these suits don't have as much punch as people might think because, you know, even if courts ruled differently and said, yes, this does constitute fraudulent advertising, uh, the funny thing is it would just require platforms to change their their statements about their moderation policies, not actually change the moderation policies. So yeah, just make them more, even more mushy than they yes. often already are, <laughs> exactly. which, um, you know, ties into one thing I wanted to, to raise, you know, so you in the paper um, say, you know, section 230 might be um, amended or repealed. And so these questions will become more important. And respectfully, I look at it and I'm like, well, you know, Republicans want one thing they want to, uh, 
they, they, you know, they use the word censorship. They, they want to open up the rules. I think it's, inc- we've talked on this show several times about all the issues with that. So I'll just leave that there. And then Democrats want to ensure that, um, you know, more can be done to combat hate speech online. So they have totally opposite goals. So I don't know if I see I, every, you know, any kind of real section mm-hmm. 230 amendment happening. Yet I completely agree with you that these issues in your paper are hugely important and likely to come up. I just maybe see them um, coming up through maybe a slightly different avenue, which is yeah. that states mm-hmm. are now getting yeah. their their act together and Florida passed a law. It looks like Texas might pass a For law. Sure. And what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of these laws, I think a lot of the material in them are just total non-starters. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to do things that are so blatantly against the First Amendment, so blatantly content-based, so blatantly viewpoint-based. And, you know, then Ron DeSantis doesn't help when he gets up on a, at a podium mm-hmm. and basically says, uh, these Silicon Valley oligarchs, it's the new 1984 and the, the Ministry of Truth. If, if his lawsuit wasn't going to fail before, he, he makes sure it will. Mm-hmm. What would be kind of more interesting, I'm not saying I agree with it, but you were just touching on this. So, let's say you pass a law as a state and all you say is you need social media website to be more detailed in explaining how you're going to moderate content. We need transparency. Everybody loves the word transparency. Be more transparent. Just just have the rules in more detail. The idea being that we can then hold them, hold you to it and maybe have sort of a consumer protection lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And that's a fascinating question to me. I think it continues to just raise profound First Amendment problems. But at least I, I think that's mm-hmm. an interesting discussion, unlike getting up at the podium and ranting about, you know, Orwell yeah. and Kafka. <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think it's an open question whether those kinds of transparency laws would would pass muster under the First Amendment. I think that goes back to the point under Hurley that I brought before, and sort of what you think the the language about sort of coherency um, means, because um, you could rely on that to say, you know, ah, no, you know, we're making editorial decisions and we don't have to explain them. Um, but I, I, you know that's in a different context. So I don't think it's necessarily a slam dunk. Um, yeah, I think there's a distinction between um, as a matter of the law, mm-hmm. the websites should have every right um, if they want to, to just be like, no, mm-hmm. like we make our decisions. They're behind closed doors. We have no more obligation to explain to you than the New York mm-hmm. Times does in explaining right. what op-eds it um, decide, mm-hmm. you know, decides to run. As a policy and public relations matter, that might be a mm-hmm. really stupid exactly. approach. And yep. we should mm-hmm. maybe have every right to pressure them not mm-hmm. to approach things that way. But those are right. two different questions. Yeah, precisely. Well, anyway, this, this, Malin, this has been great fun. It's a great paper. Again, the new editors refining First Amendment protections for internet platforms. And I encourage everyone to check it out and just, you know, there's no substitute for just reading the whole thing. But uh, are there any final aspects you'd like to highlight? Um, I would say one thing actually just on the state regulation approach, this is not something I address in the paper, but something that I think is, is really important and something to watch out for is that in addition to the bills you mentioned, lots of states are also, uh, trying to use consumer protection laws to target editorial decisions of platforms. I think that's also a very troubling practice and something we should, we should watch out for. Yeah. I think I, as I already said, I mean, my personal views, Mm -hmm. the the States are the place to watch. It's where we're going to see some real motion. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. We'll see, but um, stay tuned everyone. I mean, this is a very live issue and Malin's paper is very timely and very pertinent. Um, And I mean, and before I let you go, is there any, 
I, I pumped up your paper rightfully so. I mean, it deserves it. But is there any other work you want to uh, mention or any uh, way you want to make sure our listeners can, can find you as you uh, continue to make your way in the world? Don't know how to answer that. Uh, <laughs> my Twitter handle and my website. Um, what else? Uh, if you're interested in the intersection between surveillance and speech, um, both corporate and government, I do a lot of work on that. Fantastic. Well, Malin, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you once again, um, everyone. I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.